depth of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. The men fled from the battle. He replied. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. The young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his sword with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. He answered. David asked him, Why weren't you afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, which is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan... In life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war have perished.
The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the work of word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Thanks, Michelle, and I'll add my welcome and good morning to those who have gone before me. Hello, everyone. Good to have you here. And welcome to the new series, which is called Crowns, as we study 2 Samuel together. To get us in the right frame of mind, I heard a couple of things. I'm going to give Dermot some popcorn. There you go, Dermot. And Steve, Sharon, will you take some popcorn? Guys, feel free to eat it. Like, it's, it's fine. You are taking it out of my school's kid lunches, but it's, it's all right, Steve. The reason I want you to do that is to understand the kind of context we're coming at this from. This is a new series, but it's not a new book. Uh, we looked at 1 Samuel uh, in our series Called to Follow in 2021, and I want you to imagine that this is not a new show. You've simply been out at intermission. And so Steve and Sharon, Dermot, they've popped out to the snack bar and just grabbed some popcorn. You might have got a choc top, maybe a Diet Coke or something like that. Whatever pleases you. Um, bring that back in, and uh, we're going to come into the second act of the show. Now, one of the things I know is some of you might not have been here for the first bit. It's kind of like you missed Act 1, and now you're sneaking in the theatre with those who are out having a smoke during the um, intermission. That's all right. Welcome. Good to have you here. So we're going to do a little bit of catch up, remind ourselves of Act 1, so we're set up for Act 2, because just like any show, after intermission, they assume that you saw Act 1, it'll really bless you in Act 2. So we might remember together that in 1 Samuel, God was looking to lead his people through a human agent, and he changed the agents that he would use. In fact, when we first come into 1 Samuel, the leader of God's people is someone in the office of priests. Now, those who are in Act 1, do you remember what the priest's name was? Okay, there's about three people who are at Act 1. Everyone else snuck in with the smokers, but that's okay. His name was Eli, and Eli led God's people. Uh, then Eli would die, and God moved from having his people led by a priest at that time to being led by a prophet. I reckon you're going to know who the prophet is. His name is? His name is Samuel, of course. Now, Samuel's doing a bang-up job and everything's going great, but the people want to be like the nations and ask for a king. And the king they receive, his name is Saul. Great, act one. However, there will be a next king and his name is? And here's the tension. King to king doesn't always flow smoothly, particularly when they're from different houses. There's act one. 
And Act 1 ends with the tension between David and Saul, which I'll come back to, but brings us into our section for study this week, both here at church this morning, in life groups and in your personal devotion, as we look at crowns in conflict, chapters 1 to 4, the house of Saul and the house of David and everyone else who fancies their chance at being in charge. Crowns in conflict. This morning we come to chapter 1. And as we consider chapter 1, here's the thing I want to ask you to take home with you today. It's called Avoiding an Amalekite Gospel. Now, right now, that probably does not mean anything to you at all, but I'm hoping in about 24 minutes it will. Uh, As we look at chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to bear careful attention to avoiding an Amalekite Gospel. Here's how I want to attack this with you. I'm an Anglican minister, so I'm going to do it in threes. Uh, We're going to avoid an Amalekite gospel by looking at verses 1 and 2, the shadow of a crown. So if you're taking notes, these might be some helpful headings. Um, We're going to do some Q&A with the crown. And then we're going to talk about the crown's council. So let's jump in because there's a few things for us to, uh, to consider together this morning. Let's start with the shadow of a crown. Now, the first thing that 2 Samuel demands is that we know 1 Samuel because there are names here after the death of Saul, David returned from striking down the Amalekites. These are all key words that are meant to trigger some kind of response or learned experience in us. You see, as we're introduced to David, we're introduced to him as we have been under the shadow of Saul. Saul was, of course, as we recounted from Act 1, God, the Lord's anointed. God anointed him and made him king. But here's the thing. Often when we look at Saul and we look at David, you think, oh yeah, Saul's the bad guy, David's the good guy. Can I tell you that's a mistake? Uh, David does good things and he does bad things. Saul does good things and he does bad things. Both of these men are not perfect. Both of these men are troubled. And both of these men have significant moments where you'd say, gee, I'd like that in my resume. But what we're invited to do is recognize the contrast because if Saul was the Lord's anointed and then came along David, what's the major difference with the two? Well, there's something in a name. Saul's name literally means to ask. Saul is the king the people asked for. When God was leading them quite wonderfully through a prophet, they wanted a king like the nations. Saul means to ask. The king the people asked for. The major contrast with David is David is the king who God chose and said, he is a man after my own heart. So you have the one they asked for and the, God one, and the one God chose. Now, we've got to tidy up a misunderstanding at this point right now because it will significantly affect how you read 2 Samuel and how you think about being saved by grace. When God says, a man after my own heart, many think, oh, look at that. God looked down from heaven and went, that kid, he's one worth watching. He goes, just like I go, good kid, let's get him in the chair. Uh, Dr. John Woodhouse is right to bring us back from that false thinking. When God says, a man after my own heart, he's not referring to the place that God has in David's heart. He's referring to the place that David has in God's heart. God, when he says, a man after my own heart, is using that phrase to say, he is the man of my choosing. 
I've chosen to set my affection upon him. Now, make no mistake, David does some pretty remarkable and amazing, wonderful things, but I'm going to show you, he also does some pretty scandalous things as well. And you go, really, that guy? I thought he's meant to be the good guy, and so was the bad guy. No, this is never the way it's been. It's never the way it will be. A gracious God chooses who he chooses. And he calls them and he leads them and he does wonderful things through broken vessels. And so he did through David. So the contrast of these two is not good guy, bad guy, but the one that people asked for and the one that God chose. So we got David and Saul. And here's the other thing, Amalekites. This is like finding an old wound and pressing on it. And you go, oh, because the Amalekites were a people condemned to be utterly snuffed out by God. And I know that sometimes we hear that and we go, whoa, what kind of a God? The kind of a God who loves good things, loves people, detests evil, and hates it when people destroy one another and refuse to change. So God brings what we all hope he will bring when we watch terrible stories on the news. He brings justice. And the God who is slow to anger says, these people, their evil is too much. And so he uses his people, the Israelites, and calls Saul and says, you've got you to end these guys. I'm pronouncing my judgment upon them. I'm God, I'm just, and this is what I can do, and this is what I should do, because I love the world too much to let evil go on forever. So he blots it out. Only Saul's disobedient. Saul kills most of them, wins the battle, but you might say he doesn't win the war because he leaves some alive, he takes the plunder, it's not a good thing. And God through Samuel says, Saul, you've been disobedient, you're not the guy who can be my anointed, I'm taking the kingdom from you. So Saul will no longer be the Lord's anointed. He says, I'm going to choose someone else. He chooses David. Now the tension of the first act you remember was, well hang on a minute, and I remember reading this as a teenager, I'm so frustrated, when's David just going to be like, mate, out, move your stuff, get your removalist, whatever you got to do, this is my job now. But he doesn't, and he spares Saul's life a number of times, there's great tension, where the Lord's anointed David is often on the run and things like that. Meanwhile, the one who is no longer anointed, Saul, still wears the crown. And there's this awful tension. Now, here we go. The Amalekites, the ones who David, sorry, Saul failed to destroy, now David's having to deal with. And there's a whole other story with the town of Ziklag that we simply don't have time for this morning. Ask me at morning tea, I'll tell you. And so now we see the desire of the narrator that we would consider the difference between Saul and David. Asked for, chosen. Disobedient, starting well and so we see David and his crown in the shadow of Saul's crown and the next few chapters we'll see contrast and conflict between the two but you'll go there in your life groups so here's the next bit that happens we come to Q&A with the king the crown's Q&A this is from verse 3 onwards because Saul is now dead we knew that from Act 1. That's where First Samuel ends with the death of Saul. And now we have a little bit of that being recounted with five questions. And if we follow the instruction of people like Dr. John Woodhouse and Alistair Begg, who are both really great in Second Samuel and First Samuel, we pay careful attention to these five questions and we'll learn something. 
So the questions are between David, who now has a man who has turned up all disheveled, ash on his head and in, in, in mourning vibe, who has come before him with a report. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't come out in our English translation all the time, but repeatedly, and you understand why they don't translate it like this, because it can get convoluted. Rather than he said, it's the young man who brought the report. The young man who brought the reports. The young man who brought the reports is the repeated phrase. Why do you think that is? Do you think we're meant to pay attention to something to do with the young man who brought the report? If you nodded your head, you're correct. We're meant to learn something and focus on the young man who brought the report. Now, this young man who brought the report is asked five questions, and I couldn't help but notice as I studied this that the questions have a particular pattern to them. You've heard this phrase, I suspect, before. Uh, you might even dread it. This is what's called the chiasm. This is where uh, there is a matching of the first and last question. They're really short questions. The last one is so short that it's a rhetorical question. It doesn't even have an answer. Then the second and the fourth question are a bit longer, and the middle question is a longer question, a longer answer, and even a response to it. Why does this matter? Well, this is like uh, when language is written in such a way, so it's not just the content of what's written, but the style indicates something as well. It's like a limerick, right? You know that the last line of a limerick is saying, well, the first four lines are saying, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. What's going to happen to the man from Nantucket? And then you get to the end, and it's, wow, tough audience. Uh, and it says something, and you're meant to go, oh, that was clever, or that was rude, or that was funny, or maybe all three. A chiasm in the same way, I like to think of it as almost the writing grabs your mind and says these things, these things, these things, these things, this thing. It's like it grabs you with its arms and draws you to the center and says focus on this. And that's exactly what's happening here. But before I go to the center, let's deal with the other things because they're not there as just bookends or decorations, they matter. The Amalekite, or this man comes to David and David's first question is, where'd you come from? His answer is, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. He doesn't do geography, he does circumstance. Now you might say, that's a weird thing to say to come to David and say you've escaped from the Israelite camp, unless, similar to perhaps a war vet, you know the phrase, you wouldn't know you weren't there? This is the Amalekite saying, you and I, we have a similar experience because all through chapter one, didn't we read? And David escaped from Saul. And David escaped from Saul. And Jonathan helped David escape from Saul. And Michal helped David escape from Saul. This is the Amalekite finding a common ground with the man he doesn't have common ground going, I know what it's like. We both know what it's like to escape that regime. He's seeking to find a common ground to speak from. David asks him, what happened? This is again, go back to, go back to Act 1, the bit that we might have missed because maybe we missed it, but this is when Eli, the leader of Israel, the priest, uh, the guys go off and they're fighting against the Philistines and then a report comes back, a disturbed man runs back and Eli says, what happened? How did it go? And he receives the report that the men were beaten, they ran away, and the ark of the Lord is captured, and your sons are dead. And Eli, who is a heavy-set man, falls back off his chair, his neck is broken, and he dies. And leadership transfers at that point from the priest to the prophet Samuel. 
Now, the prophet Samuel will be the leader from there on. And again here, this Amalekite who has sought common ground of, well, we both know what it is to escape, has now stepped in with a... But I have some news you might be interested in. Do you know that guy who's been sitting in your chair for a while wearing your crown, Saul? Yeah, he's dead. There's almost like an opportunity to be the bearer of good news wrapped in bad news. I'm the one who's here to tell you, at last, you're king. At last, Malige, because he's bowed down, you will be king. He's currying favour with David. The fourth question, David asks him, who are you? And I don't know if you noticed, but the way he answers this is very strategic. He answers in verse 13 who he is in a slightly different way to how he asks, how he answers Saul. So rewind, and I'll tell you where to go. David, uh, Saul said to the Amalekite man in verse 8, he asked me, who are you? And the Amalekite doesn't hide from David that he told to Saul straight up, an Amalekite. Here's what's going on. He, t- he tells David that he told Saul, told Saul, Saul's a dying man. I'm an Amalekite. Now, you might expect Saul should say, yeah, I should have dealt with you guys a long time ago. But he doesn't. Instead, it's actually our well-meaning Amalekite who says, and what can I do for you? How can we mend fences? And he reports that Saul says, you could euthanize me because I'm in great pain and I'm dying. I'm dying, but my life still lasts. So he asks for euthanasia. He's like, end this pain. And so the Amalekite kills him. What the Amalekite is hoping to do is to say, hey, David, I, I think all that bad blood between us might be over now. You see your predecessor, he didn't kill me. In fact, he asked me to do him this kindness. And I (gasps) did my duty and helped him out. Now when he speaks to David and David says, who are you? Do you notice he answers slightly different? He doesn't just say to an able-bodied king, I'm an Amalekite. He says, I'm a foreigner, the son of a foreigner, an Amalekite. He's leaning on the law at this point. See, he knows as David knows, that God who is loving and kind, who blots out evil, always protects the vulnerable as well. And so God has commanded his people to look after the sojourner, look after the foreigner who is among you, look after the widow, look after the fatherless. This is why the story of Ruth can happen the way it happens, because God has laws that mean that the foreigner among you will get care. They're not counted as an Israelite, but you don't treat them as an unwelcome invader. You'll practice hospitality and you'll care for them. So he says, my liege, I'm a sojourner and a Malachite. And he dines out on the Saul and I made good, and surely you'll treat me with the hospitality of a sojourner. He's carrying favour. He's looking to move in closer to Saul, uh, to David. Well, David's response, again, the short question is rhetorical. He doesn't even need an answer to this one. Instead, he says, you must be out of your mind, son. How did you think that it was going to be okay to reach out your hand against the Lord's anointed? It's not just that he's Saul. It's that he's God's choice. And you stood against him. You 
killed him. Now, you might say, yeah, but he was dying anyway. Surely you just move on. That's not what a man about a thousand years later would do when he watched the Lord's anointed die. As Jesus hung on the cross as the Lord's anointed dying and seemingly helpless to everybody, a man had a righteous response where he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And whilst others were disrespectful and even would have reached out their hand to the Lord's anointed, this man didn't. And you see the Amalekite has gone about this the wrong way. So all of those questions to tell us something about what? What are the arms doing? The arms are dragging us to the center of the story where we learn that how do you know, David asks, and he says, oh, I'm a witness. I was there. What we're meant to focus on from this Q&A with the crown is that this guy is claiming to be a witness. He's claiming to be a, a herald, an announcer, one who I witnessed and now report an announcer he might even say an announcer of good news you're the king some kind of gospel messenger you might say well the amazing thing in this chiasm that has arms that stretch out it's like the arm has fingers on it as well because there's a chiasm in the chiasm and now the fingers on the arm go no 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 even tighter look at it like this there's something I want you to focus on. See, the Amalekite, in explaining to David his eyewitness account, tells four lies and one truth. How do we know he's lying? How can I stand here with such confidence and say to you, he's lying? Because I have the most reliable voice in the book speaking to me, and so do you. What's his name? The narrator. The narrator is your guide. Sometimes David will speak, speak wisdom, sometimes he'll speak folly. Don't think just because it's David and he's the hero, he's always right. The narrator will tell you what is up. And the narrator in 1 Samuel, verse, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 31 gave us an account of how David, how Saul and Jonathan died. And we only went out to intermission we didn't have the men in black kind of, I don't remember anything. We went out to intermission, came back in, and now we're expecting things to be the same. But they're not the same, because if you look at verse 6 with me, I happened, this is the Amalekite telling you story, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Now that's weird already. Who just happens to be walking the dog through a war zone? Okay. Okay, you just happened to be there. Uh, well, okay, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and their drivers in hot pursuit. Really? Uh, the geography in Act 1 tells us that chariots can't go to this place. Number two, the very last chapter of Act 1 tells us that David wasn't overcome by chariots, he was overcome by archers. This is like the Boromir scene in Lord of the Rings. He's got big fat arrows hanging out of him and he's dying. The archers overcame him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me and I said, what can I do? We have no record of this conversation ever taking part. I would challenge if I was a prosecuting attorney and say, you've yet to actually establish that you were even there. No, I brought his crown and his armband. Are they his, arm, are they his crown and his armband? Does the king wear a crown when he's fighting? <laughs> oh, sorry. No, he wears the king's armour. So who knows? I speculate, but who knows? He asked me, who are you? Here's the truth. I'm an Amalekite. 
Then he said to me, stand here by me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. No, he didn't. He said that to his armor bearer, who was too terrified to do it. And no, he didn't. He didn't say, I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. He said, I am dying, and I'm concerned that the Philistines are going to come, and they will torture me, and they will mistreat me. And he knows I'm the Lord's anointed. I'm sure he's scared, but he also reveres his role. Saul's not just a pure bad guy. They'll treat God's things wrongly. Says so another lie. So I stood beside him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the, and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. We never hear about this crown and, bar and armband again, but anyway. Um, no, you didn't. He didn't ask you to kill him. You didn't kill him. He asked his armor bearer to kill him. He didn't kill him because he was afraid. Who killed Saul? Saul killed Saul when he fell on his sword and his armor bearer did likewise. Your Amalekite is a liar. Your Amalekite is a man who is contorting the truth for the outcome he would prefer. But he tells us one truth. He's an Amalekite. Do you see this? Arms came in, look to the witness. What does he say? Fingers come in, who is the witness? How has he done it? He's an Amalekite. An Amalekite is, as we know from Act 1, an enemy of God not reconciled to God, not ready to approach God. Now you might say, I don't know, but you saw at the start when he approached David, he fell down. That's fine if you're in a right relationship. When the Duchess of Cambridge comes before, I saw this on TV, the Duchess of Cambridge comes before the Queen Consort Camilla, she comes up, little curtsy, right relationship, different order. When you're a rebel, a curtsy's not going to cut it. You're an Amalekite. Now, God is a God of perfect justice. Sometimes he says these people need to be stopped and there will be a battle and a war against them. Sometimes he says these people need to be ended. And that's what he said about the Amalekites. That's what the scriptures say about you and I. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Count me an Amalekite. This Amalekite comes before the Lord's anointed thinking he can do a deal, thinking he can speak to him like they're on equal terms with a little curtsy. And rather than come before him and say, my only hope is your mercy toward me, he turns up and says, have I got a deal for you? You know, David, you and I are not that different, you know. And I've got some news that will make your ears itch. So, uh, put a jug on and let's talk. I think you're going to appreciate my visit. Of course, David doesn't and he uh, tells his servants, verse 14, David asked him, why weren't you afraid? And then he says in verse 15, then David called to his men said, go strike him down. So he struck him down and he died for David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. And so this is the crown's counsel that this Amalekite, a man who stood as a condemned people, remains in conflict with the Lord's anointed. His only hope was to come and ask for mercy and grace, but instead he came to make a deal. Have you ever heard this gospel? Maybe you've shared this gospel 
Maybe you still live this gospel where you still think there's some way to come before God, bringing something in your hand, some news, some good favor, something, and it might just get you in the door. When the only thing that gets us in the door with the Lord's anointed is His grace towards us. And the only posture before the Lord's anointed is to say, have mercy on me, a sinner. I deserve death. The scriptures have told me I fall short of your glory. Rescue me, please. There's no dealing. This Amalekites is one who comes and he treats the Lord's anointed with utter contempt. He doesn't revere Saul. He uses Saul. He lies about Saul. He wasn't there. At best, he turned up when Saul was stone cold. But he wasn't there. This is a lie. He tells lies about Saul. He doesn't revere Saul like the thief on the cross revered Jesus, though he was dying. And he uses Saul for advantageous gain. He doesn't revere Saul. He does what he wants to do in the name of Saul and doesn't think for a moment, if Saul was here, he'd say different. Sometimes people do things in the name of Jesus and don't think if Jesus were here, he'd say different. He wouldn't say amen to that. Only Jesus is here. This is a guy who uses the Lord's anointed for his advantage. And this is a gospel we hear. Follow Jesus, worship Jesus because he'll take you to heaven. Worship Jesus, he'll make you well. Worship Jesus, he'll make you wise. Worship Jesus, he'll make you wealthy. Make you, worship Jesus, he'll prosper you. Now, some of these things are definitely true. Some of them may be true, but they're not the reasons to worship Jesus. Don't treat Jesus as a functional savior. I'll worship, let's do a deal, Jesus. I'll do some worship and you give me this. That's how Satan worked with Jesus when he tempted him in the, de in the desert. No, Jesus is worshipped because he's worthy. That's it. We worship Jesus because he's the Lord. We worship Jesus because he's God. Not so in return he might. Just trust him. Just worship him because he's worthy. He's good and he's powerful and he's appointed. And the beautiful thing is those who are following him, he does do wonderful things for like salvation. But this guy is looking to cut a deal. He treats the Lord's anointed more like a genie in a bottle than the Lord's anointed. He treats the Lord's anointed with contempt. And so he does as he meets David. He speaks to David and lies to David. I've shown you the lies. And again, treats the Lord's anointed with contempt. He speaks a gospel in such a way that he might achieve the outcome he is after, which is the friendship and fellowship of David rather than the truth of his announcements. Do you get that? He preaches a gospel that might secure a favorable outcome rather than a gospel that's true. And here is where we ask the New Testament to pick up the reading for us with 1 Timothy chapter 4. Because since the time of the Amalekite and before, the Amalekite gospel is very much alive. It's very much alive. It will sneak into your own mindset from time to time if you're not vigilant. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such things come through hypocritical liars like the Amalekite, whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. And it goes on to say, so if you do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that, you can curry favor with God. 
Paul goes on to say to Timothy and says to me and says to you, sometimes you need to press in and say inconvenient truths. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Sometimes people ask me, sometimes you ask me, sometimes you email me, why do you have to say that? Sometimes they say, why is our church talking about this again? Because we love, because we love a God who says, you'll serve me well if he points out the errors. You'll serve me well and you'll serve one another well if you contend for truth. If your highest goal is to be friends with everybody, then you should recheck your master who was put on a cross. David David is a guy who'll go on from this and offer a lament. And when David laments, do you notice what he does in his song? I haven't got the verses for you, but you heard it read. In David's lament song, he speaks of reverence for the fallen Saul, the man who treated him so badly, but he treats the Lord's anointed as he should. When David speaks and sings of Saul, he speaks of him being worthy. Not because of what he can do for us, because he's been appointed. When David speaks of Saul, he talks about, now don't announce this in these places. Why? They'll ridicule it. The gospel according to David at this point is, let's speak the truth. Let's say what's true. Now let's be kind But brothers and sisters, we need to realize today your job is to guard the gospel, to announce it with joy, announce it with winsomeness, announce it in the power and strength of God, but also be willing to do what Jesus called his disciples to do. If they don't receive you, you shake the dust off your feet and you walk away. I'll say it again, I didn't stutter. You shake the dust off your feet and you walk away. The gospel is first a message about God. And the Lord is not mocked. The Lord's not there for ridicule. The Lord's anointed is not to be treated with contempt. Oh, so be so kind. God calls for hospitality, the love of the stranger. God calls for gracious, generous words. But the Lord is not mocked. Sometimes there's a space to shake the dust off your feet and walk away. And let your unshakable commitment to the Lordship of Jesus be your voice in silence. Last thing I want to say, this is important. In David's laments, just towards the end in verse 26, David speaks of my favorite guy in the whole Bible. I know that's meant to be Jesus, but he's more than a guy, right? He's the Lord. But my favorite guy, my favorite human dude with no, he's also God attached to him, is Jonathan. I love Jonathan. And some other day I'll tell you why. David laments, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. Let's talk about what this does mean. Let's talk about what this doesn't mean, what this does mean and what this could mean. It certainly doesn't mean, as some have mistakenly contended, oh, you can see there that David and Jonathan were in some kind of a sexual relationship. That's just a ridiculous exegesis. 
But I tell you what it says, it's actually something very helpful because it tells us something about the reader. We live in a society today where sex is like God. It's the highest good. And all things must be done to protect sex and sexual desire. And the sad part of that is somehow we think sex is the pinnacle of relationship. And so deep, deep friendships, rather than pressing further to what the friendship means, are somehow put in this limited category because it's not sexual. We have a Lord who calls us his bride, and the bridegroom is returning, but the metaphor ends there. It doesn't say, and Jesus is coming back to have sex with his church. I know that's really crass to say, but I want to drive the point home. Sometimes people say the marriage doesn't work because the sex isn't right. It's a part of the relationship, but it's not the pinnacle of the relationship. Sometimes you will have a condition or a situation where sex is not possible for the relationship. Does that mean it's a lesser relationship? May it never be. So I appreciate that some people have read this in this mistaken way of saying, ah, oh, look, Jonathan and Dave were in a sexual relationship. It tells me nothing about the passage, but it tells me something about the culture I need to be aware of in our world and call it out and say sex is not the greatest good, nor the highest pinnacle part of a relationship. What does it mean? It means that Jonathan really is the best guy in the Bible. I love that this Jonathan, this son of Saul, this man who stood to inherit it all, and his dad made it very clear to him. He didn't just pass a note to him over dinner. He threw a spear at him just to make sure he got the point. As long as David's alive, your kingdom can never be. You can inherit all of this. Jonathan had the world at his feet. And I love to think that on that day when Jonathan kissed David, he was kissing his kingdom goodbye and doing what Psalm 2 says to say, says to do, kiss the Lord's anointed and receive blessing in him. Jonathan was more invested in God's kingdom than his own. That's what it means. It's brilliance. But here's what it could mean, and I know I'm over time, but I think this is important for the whole of reading 2 Samuel. I would say it's not great praise when a man like David says of you, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of, woman, of women. Because David doesn't know squat about the love of women. This is why you can't say Saul's the good guy and David's the bad guy. David's a contemptible disgrace when it comes to loving a woman. If a man like David ever comes near my daughter, there's going to be some serious conversations. And then I call Robin to come and beat him up. Well, I can't bench press someone to death. I need someone who can throw a punch. <laughs> Seriously, though. David's first wife was Michal. We're told in the scriptures, Michal loved David. We never receive a reciprocal comment. This poor woman, Michal, she's given to David and offered as a pawn by her father, Saul. My rival's coming along. Well, bring him into the family. Keep my enemies close. And so he does that. David says, Whew, this is a good offer. So, of course, he goes and does a significant battle and some surgery uh, to pay the price for Michal, but not so much for Michal, because when the guys say to him, what's going on here, David? He says, do you think it's a small thing to become the son-in-law of the king? Michal is the pawn for David and Saul to work to posture with their rivals. 
Now, Michal loved David and she saves David's life. She helps him escape from her father. She lies to her dad. I told you, her dad chucked a javelin at his firstborn heir's head. How much more would he hurt his daughter? A lot more, I suggest. Anyway, so she helps David escape. When David runs off, does he take his wife with him? No. Leaves her behind with her dad. Whilst David is understandably retreating from Saul and left his wife behind, does he issue her a certificate of divorce as the Mosaic law requires? No, he doesn't. Instead, he commits adultery when he marries the woman, Abigail. Why did he get Abigail? She's smart. She's wise. Good for the trophy cabinet. So he gets Abigail. Uh, After marrying Abigail, who we hear a lot about, one sentence after Abigail given to Ahinoam. And Ahinoam was his other wife. So now we're up to three. Now, sometimes people say, how come God did these things, didn't say anything about these guys in the Old Testament with all their wives? And we give poor SRE answers when we say, well, there was no law about that. Rubbish. Keep reading your Bible. There was a law. Deuteronomy 17, 17, when you're appointed a king, he should not collect lots of gold and silver. He shouldn't gather lots of horses and soldiers. And he shouldn't have many wives. How many is many? Well, zero is okay. One is right, two is many. And right now I've given you Abigail, and I'd love to t- sorry, I've given you Michal, and there's more to that painful story. We don't have time. Let's just say she was rubbished by this man. Abigail, that's two, in an adulterous situation. Ahinoam, that's three. Makkah, that's four. Hagith, that's five. Abitiel, that's six. Egla, that's seven. And I haven't even mentioned Bathsheba yet. Nor the concubines. This man's a scoundrel. There is nothing impressive about this man when it comes to loving a woman. Why does God use people like that? Friends, because God uses people like that. That's God. He's a gracious God. It's not that David was amazing. It's that God's amazing and he's gracious and did great things through David. So it's not like that's the bad guy, that's the good guy. Be like David. Well, be like some bits of David. But there's more to it. And here's where we end. And you're thinking, thank the Lord I was ready for the next intermission. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sort of. Our gospel is not an Amalekite gospel. It's not a gospel that trivializes the beliefs of others or our own truths. It's not a gospel that seeks to use our Messiah It's not a gospel that distorts truth to gain the outcome we want. Our gospel is not about worshipping fallen men, be they David, your favourite celebrity pastor, your life group leader, or someone on this platform. It's not about hero worshipping. It's not about forming a personality cult. Our gospel is about a perfect God-man called Jesus, who is superior to Jonathan. Our gospel differs in a very real way from the Amalekites' gospel. Not just the things I've mentioned, 
but that the Amalekite announced messiahship with a message of death. We announce messiahship, that Jesus is Lord, with the message of the resurrection, that he is risen. Amen? Amen. Reflect on it while we wait for the band to come and lead us.